I can do that. Hello everyone, my name is Akhish Joshi and I might as well keep my intro so that I don't have to pick up things on the fly. So I'm currently a board member of Vedics, the World Association of Vedic Studies, an organization that has hosted uh, biannual conferences internationally for the past 20 years. Also, founder of the online Meda journal. I grew up in India and after completing my bachelor's, came to the US, got two masters. I live and work in the Toledo area, Ohio. And I've been pretty active in our local uh, community, both in the temple and in terms of outreach with the local uh, university community, the uh, interfaith religious community, etc. So that's pretty much a basic introduction. So the title of my paper is Essentially Unchanged, the Oriental, Orientalist and Post-Colonial Bay. view of the book of conference papers, Orientalism and the Post-Colonial Predicament. Is my voice coming through clearly? Yes. Okay. So basically the key question I'm trying to ask and answer is why Western Indologists appear authoritative in spite of a lack of lived-in experience in the culture and inability to grasp basic frameworks of the social realities of India. Uh, this is uh, the slide number two, my introduction slide. So, so basically that's what it's covering, the introduction part, which is basically that uh, I just want to answer that question at the first bullet point. And Essentially, Oriental, Orientalism 2.0 is based on rewriting the history of decolonial and colonial India. So, Rajiv Malhotra has covered it pretty well in the battle for Sanskrit. The claim seems to be that there are lots of new research findings which gives, you, gives rise to more advanced and successful theories. And if Sheldon Pollock is like an eminent exponent, he's extending a framework which seems to be, by consensus, all of the Indologists seem to more or less agree because there's not much criticism of what he's doing. So then that makes the Book of Conference papers a key um, sample, and that's what I'm trying to do, a review and a puro paksha. So on to the next slide. The key point is for me that Orientalism 1.0 is being critiqued, but as it is being critiqued, it seems to be slowly turning and becoming by itself Orientalism 2.0. So this is not something unique that I'm saying. Much of it is based on what I understood from reading both Rajiv's book and then also following much of Sheldon Pollock's work and the ancillary literature that he quotes and people who quote him approvingly. So in this bunch of conference papers, Edward Said's text is like an anchor, but is used very selectively. And the older in-depth studies that considered India as an integral civilization 
that is Louis Dumont and then uh, McKim Marriott, etc. These are deconstructed and carved as products solely based on Orientalism. So essentially, the voice all sing from the same playbook. Um, you know, the native or emic voices heard via ventriloquism. They they figure out that their data can speak for the native voice much better, better than the native voice can speak for itself. So it gets scripted via Western text-based research. And the basis for this is literature, in a quote-unquote. And this can mean whatever the scholar and theorist finds out useful. So the collection of paper is about 11 papers, I think. So I've purposely not reviewed Sheldon Pollock's own deep orientalism because as I expected and as we have, we have Ashay Nayak, Vishal Agrawal and probably Conrad Elst also who have uh, done really pointed critiques of that specific paper. But I'm interested in basically showing the underlying uh, sort of a framework that exists and from which people like Pollock can bounce off and show that they are extending a well-accepted thesis. So again, if this is again, the key point in this slide is basically that Indic philosophy is not given the status of philosophy and it's categorized as literature. And this enables inappropriate framing because official data, data that Indologists find acceptable, which is obviously selective, and massage according to their prerogatives is used to deconstruct the emic views so that Indian society appears incoherent, disorderly, and randomly connected in both time and space. And one of the key themes that seems to be run through, running through all the papers is that supranational entities, for example, you can call the leftist movement, Islam, Christianity, in their institutional forms, they are included in the definition whenever convenient to show that they are part of Indian civilizational ethos and the communal con conflict that people see on and off is inherent to the civilizational ethos. So the first paper is that of uh, Peter van der Weer and essentially here he critiques Louis Dumont's categories of communalism and nationalism and he also pulls in McKim Marriott. And again, here it starts the same drumbeat that proceeds through all the rest of the papers, which is that Indian nationalism or whatever they construe as Indian nationalism is inauthentic and is inspired by all this Orientalism 1.0. And Orientalism 1.0 is basically colonial Orientalism, primarily British, and also lots of other European strains in which Muslims are subsumed as the others in inferior position based on that narrative. And then again the other pervasive theme is that Brahmins slash elite are implicated in the hierarchicalness of Indian society. The next paper is by Jayant Lele. This is a very broad-based critique on Western Indology and capitalism via an extremely, extreme Marxist lens. Essentially, all the good tropes of the Marxist lens on India are present here. 
So Manuvadi Brahmins as the power hegemons, creating the divide between high and low culture. Obviously, the low culture is the authentic peasant proletariat culture. And he claims that the Marxist universalism gets India right. Seems to have a correct understanding. And the and the really um, impactful point for me is that closer to the end of the paper, he says basically that there is something called critical reappropriation or reform from within. And this, if you really read it, if you really look at it objectively, this is nothing but the, the same aesthetization of power that Pollock accuses Indian elites of having uh, via you know, Benjamin's influential theories, but it is just that it is reversed. So it's bad when the Indian elites do it, but it's good when leftist intellectuals uh, you know, recommend it as reform from within, which means you should have the appearance of tradition, but do what, whatever is supposed to be morally good according to their standards. And again, part of that is he, some of the seeds of what Pollock has finally developed in a very fine form are here, which is that adhyatmic components are not there. And then Indian tradition, according to Marx's theory, is the historic childhood and it needs Western progressivism, uh, presumably to grow up. And this, the last key point is something that we should always take note when we praise academics. And most of us who read them know this, but the general public generally does not believe that the academics openly advocate things like, quote unquote, people's war and all that, and they quote it in very intellectual clothing, but essentially they are advocating people's war, basically. So this is a revolution which is okay by their standards, and that's what they're doing. So now Gayatri Chakravarti's Spivak is the next paper that I reviewed. And essentially the key point out of this is that English literature, as it has been produced over the past two, three hundred years, has a very specific intended reader. And we should not be surprised, but we are, that this intended reader is not really us who seem to be the main consumers of this, but it's actually from the metropole, that is the centers in the West, be it London or U currently the US and so on. So we grew up in India as the unwitting reader, you know, and got heavy doses of soft indoctrination in the mores of the West, and we internalized this in the intellectual identity of ourselves. And after this, she kind of devolves into a lot of gender-based specifics and so on and so forth, which is not really relevant to this topic and it doesn't advance much of the thesis. Move on to the next paper. This paper is a very good one in the sense that it gives a very detailed review to Harvardkar, Vinay Harvardkar, traces the definition of literature over colonial times. And this is an overarching theme where everything that they feel like is subsumed into this category called literature. And that's why our philosophical structure, which should be the thing that would explain India to outsiders, is subsumed as literature. And so it's just given some sort of aesthetic appreciation. If you look at the last key point, there's McDonald and there's A.B. Keith, who basically do a beautiful analysis of Kavya as classical literature but it's mostly aesthetic appreciation, not quite addressing 
the adhyatmik or the framework aspect which by the way i mean for those familiar with the work of mckim marriott based on you know milton singer and so on and also um ms rinivas's anthropology these people have done real life studies and they've mapped the fact that sankhya vedantic cosmology plays a day to day role in the lives of villagers in india so that shows that would be the more appropriate category which is completely ignored and much of the definition of literature is based more on european presumptions european trends as they were happening over the past centuries rather than india's own self classification although we have a very sophisticated framework so dharwadkar covers it really well this is a paper worth reading next comes david i suppose the pronunciation is lelwell david lelwell so his paper is mostly about the whole language debates about how what how hindi and urdu came about and what was hindustani and what were the what were the criteria based on which broadcast media specifically all india radio uh, made their choices of how to broadcast in language there's a lot of good detail but essentially this is very derivative of bernard cohn's very pithy language of command and command of language paper and uh, i think that paper really covers the whole british experience very well because it delves deep into the archives without making any overarching theoretical commitments as to what that means which i think is a trend that from the 70s onwards it looks like they are using existing data but trying to show that they are advancing in terms of theoretical um advancement basically getting more and more complex theory which is better fitting the data and the, and the author goes prescriptive he starts prescribing against the perils of nationalism another very uh, a theme that continues through most uh, most of the papers and he invokes bendick anderson's very um, you know influential research reconstruction of nationalism in imagined communities and this of course is very tempting for us to look at today's global politics and figure out whether these people really knew what they were saying or whether they really got their analysis right then next is the review of rosanne rosher and the key points here she also is a very very meticulous researcher and at this point it would be very uh, i would like to point out again that much of the data that is available in all these papers and studies is of a really very high quality and we would do well to pay real serious attention to the data that's coming out of all this and we have obviously at least my perspective is that we can always take issue with the theories in which these this data is fitted so in her data she goes in detail about what were the how what was the background of wilkins charles wilkins the translation of the gita and then the translation of the manusmriti etc and how according to her they did not have much of a status before that but they got elevated to high status because the orientalists in the east india company wanted to show off indian civilization as something more than the barbaric civilization that the others were thinking and it had a lot to do with the kind of funding they were seeking and so on so there was a lot of corporate sort of uh, background to the whole thing 
And she also makes a point, which uh, you know, Lillywelt and other people also make, which is that the Orientalists created this dualistic Indo-Muslim framework which collapsed all diversity. And there's a very motivated reading of all this. On the face of it, these all look like credible facts, but the way they are read is where the interest is. So there's a marked preference for the current academic fashion of looking at India as a hotbed of divisive multiple identities, which it is not clear from these people whether they think it, it was always the reality or whether the British made it and the current Hinduism is uh, continuing that. So her key point is basically that Orientalism 1.0 created Hinduism. Next comes David Ludden, and I think I have two slides. Am I, how good am I on time? I still have... You have another seven minutes. Seven minutes. So maybe let me rush through the next few slides then. David Ludden has also gone into a lot of detail about the background of uh, William Jones and so on. But the key point is, it's a good point that we need to remember that as Europe got richer, it degraded the perception of India via the influential, very universal theorizing by Mills, Mark, Agel, and uh, Weber. So the traditional Indian accounts, which were taken seriously earlier, became myths. And then Orientalism became, this is slide number 12, Orientalism became global history of European us, which was consisting of capitalism, rationality, historicity, modernity, and self-transforming versus the static them or other. And he makes the point basically that the data and facts started getting intellectually detached from their existence which was dependent on colonialism. And these ended up becoming 20th century theories of modernization and Marxist theory. So in the Indian data quote unquote contributed to bolstering these theories. And the key point he is making in his prescriptive mode, basically, is that current Indian institutions, including the government of India, are still fixated on a false oriental construction of India. So essentially, what I read from this is that, welcome to Orientalism 2.0. Basically, they're deposing Orientalism 1.0 and then uh, instating 2.0, which includes the call to a war, the, and this is his words, nation to be demolished as a cultural formation via intellectual labor. Now the next one is Nicholas Dirks. Now he has done much, much more seminal contributions, so I won't really belabor this paper of it, but it's a survey of Mackenzie, and this shows the meticulousness with which data was collected, and Mackenzie was pretty um, empathetic and understanding of what he was gathering, but the rest of his cohorts were not, and how all his stuff basically resulted in a net loss of the native voice, in spite of all his personal convictions. Then next, the next paper is Arjun Appadurai's paper, where scientific enumeration and surveying are given a really thorough treatment, and it's very nuanced view, and I think it is due to the influence of Bernard Cohen as his teacher, and obviously Appadurai growing up in Bombay and going to Elphinstone College and so on, and so he has a certain Indian ethos and understanding of what he's talking about. So he shows that us ends up showing British sensibilities more than the Indian realities. And the key goal for them was standardization. So some of these were sort of unintentional consequences, one could say. And he cites the joint report 1980-47 as one of his key things in his paper. And then here are two quotes from him. 
and basically the same point of unyoking the data from the reality, right? And uh, basically they were looking for an overall grid through the census as to how to map the population and how to rule it. So it's a more nuanced take than Ludden's. So the conclusion as far as I'm concerned is 1.2, constructed Indian identity and nationalism. So the tradition is false. This is what they are saying, the Indologists are saying. So there was a pre-existing sharp dichotomy between the elites and common forms. Obviously very convenient for leftist Marxist theory in all of India history. Very sweeping conclusions based on very little data and all one-sided data from the colonizer, which is where probably after a Purva Paksha, when you do an Uttar Paksha, one should gather as much coherent data from the emic side, from the insider Indian side, in order to refute much of these theories. And uh, Brahmins as employed as uh, employed by Orientalists, so they are treated very much like the elite compradores bearing the joint responsibility for Orientalism. It doesn't seem to be pertinent that there are a lot of other elite groups that also worked for colonialists, but obviously because they were not in the knowledge industry, they are not treated as important enough to analyze. So there is no need to cross-compare against the experience of other colonized societies. And I think this is the last slide, basically that uh, the slide number 17, that European theories of human social and intellectual degeneration, um, where they presume some pristine Vedic Aryan past and said there is degeneration, and somehow very conveniently it has become analogous to the Puranic ideas of the devolution of human beings throughout the yugas, from Satya Yuga to you know Dwapar, Dritta uh, 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 Yuga, Dwapar Yuga, and Kali Yuga. So it's not surprising that the both Indian elites and colonizers same, share the same mindset according to them. So this is incipient uh, deep Orientalism in the beginning. And text are key texts like Bhagavad Gita specifically and Manuspriti, which is convenient whipping word, are artificially elevated by the British. That's what they're saying. So this, in essence, is sort of the key points of what I have. So if I have, I guess we have some time for any questions and answers or comments, which I would like. Thank you. <laughs>